Hello and welcome to episode 121 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Nathan Rohde. Nathan is the National Scouting Supervisor for Prep Baseball Report. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Nathan Rohde. That's R-O-D-E. Nathan, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast today. No problem, Ross. Thanks for having me. Well, Nathan, tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Uh, well, I played in high school, uh, like so many people out there, and uh, I got to a point where I realized that my career was going to stop with high school uh, unless I wanted to go to a very small college, uh, which I didn't want to do. So I looked for, uh, I guess, the next best thing to try to stay as close to uh, the game as possible. And so when I went to college, I got into sports writing. Um, I interned for a minor league team while I was in college uh, and then parlayed that into an internship at Baseball America, which which upon graduation turned into a full-time job. So I uh, spent six or seven years at Baseball America uh, being a, you know, a jack-of-all-trades, but mainly being the high school editor, and that eventually turned into my uh, current position at Prep Baseball Report. How is what you do now different from what writers do at Baseball America or at Fangraphs BP, any of their national prospect writers? How is what you do different? Well, when I was at Baseball America, and they do still uh, operate this way, I mean, all those guys, as well as me, they all have an eye for the game. So they certainly have that scouting sense, because that's, that's kind of how they're covering the game, is from that scouting and development side, uh, as opposed to just purely the, the night-after-night result. Uh, so we all have that eye for the game and kind of can uh, disseminate information and decipher players from each other and who's good and who's fringy and that sort of thing. Um, but since shifting over to Prep Baseball Report, they valued uh, they, they value the scouting side, like the personal opinion, uh, much more. They want me to stick my opinion out there. Um, and all of our, you know, our guys that work in for us, you know, individually by state, they're all college coaches or former scouts. And, you know, we want them to put their opinion out there because that's providing information to the people that want it in college recruiters uh, and scouts for major league organizations. So when I was at Baseball America, while I did have that eye and that uh, opinion on players, really what that was for was to help me have conversations with people in the industry to gather information and kind of come to uh, a conclusion as to what the industry consensus was, if there was one, um, and, you know, kind of just assist in having good conversations instead of, uh, you know, asking stupid questions or trying to get somebody to just completely divulge information. It was a lot easier to call a scout up and be like, hey, I saw this guy and looked like it was a plus breaking ball to me. You know, what are your thoughts as opposed to, hey, what's your grade on this? What's your grade on that? Um, but now it's uh, a lot more of just me putting my opinion out there um, and letting people, uh, you know, I guess kind of digest that. And did you have to go to scouting school? I, I did not have to go to scouting school. Um, I definitely uh, wanted to and had looked into it at times when I was at Baseball America to try to, you know, help train myself and, and uh, you know, get a lot more into the nuances, you know, that the scouts have. But in all honesty, you know, I've been doing this since I graduated in 2007, so 12 years now. I really feel like I've been going to scouting school for 12 years. Uh, I've developed a lot of really good relationships uh, with scouts um, that have become really good friends of mine, and 
uh, they've helped me along in the process and they answer my questions. And um, I think anybody in this in the game knows and, and kind of operates by this is, is we're all learning every day. Uh, as soon as you feel like or think that you've got it figured out, this game will chew you up and spit you out and you'll be looking for a job. So, um, you know, while I would have liked to have gone to, to scout school and really kind of taken that crash course and dove in, uh, you know, with both feet, I feel like I've been doing that in a sense, you know, over the course of the last 12 years. You've been doing this for 12 years in one form or another, and we've seen the game really change, and we've seen player development change significantly over that time. Mm-hmm. Given the launch angle revolution and all the data that players are using now, and they're using even at a younger and younger age, how has that changed how you evaluate prospects? I think, so I'm of the uh, of the mold that you got to blend the two. You know, there's this thought that there's the old school and new school scouting, where the old school is... You know, you go out and look at a player and you evaluate the tools and the frame and, uh, you know, projection and things like that and try to guess what the guy's going to do five, ten years down the road. Whereas now, obviously, there's a lot more analytics going into the uh, game, especially on the amateur side, uh, you know, trying to find ways to decipher that information on the kids and and, uh, how that's going to play out down the road. and. I think that you you need both. You can't do just one or the other. So for me, the way it's changed is just been looking at different ways to you know evaluate everything. And for me, the more information, the better. It's up to us to decipher and disseminate that information uh, and come to a conclusion. But I'm not going to sit here and you know say, well, you know, I like this guy's tools. I'm just going to totally disregard you know, what his strikeout rate was on the summer sh- showcase circuit, because I see he's got plus bat speed and he's a, f- a freak athlete or something like that. I do need to take into account that, you know, when this guy faces the top competition, he strikes out a lot. Uh, and that probably tells me something about his future. Um, so for me, it, it's changed in that there's just way more information out there and it can get, you know, to a little bit of information overload at times, but you really just have to find a way to sit down and kind of parse it all out and, uh, you know, figure out what it all means. Let's do some draft recap. The Orioles obviously had the number one pick. They took Adley Rutschman out of Oregon State. Catcher, switch hitter, put up mm-hmm. some really big numbers this year. Let me see. I have his slash line right in front of me here. It was 411, 575, 751 with 17 <laughs> home runs. So those are good numbers. Yes, indeed. What are what exactly are the Orioles getting in him? They are certainly not going to get that. That, no, they're not, they're not going to get that. And what's amazing is he did that while also losing a lot of really good players around him. Now, don't get me wrong. There still were good players on Oregon State, a postseason team that was eliminated you know, earlier than they should have been. They uh, definitely had the capability of making a super regional. Um, but he did that with a lot, without a lot of the protection around him uh, that he had last year in the huge year he put up then as a sophomore. Uh, but the Orioles are getting a cornerstone franchise type player. I mean, you're looking at a franchise that's, you know, trying to rebuild, trying to get back to, you know, the competitive days that they had, you know, in like the nineties. And, you know, he, Adley Rutschman provides the foundation for that. Uh, When I have conversations with people about, you know, who is he, you know, what you like to throw out player comps, you know, I like to think of a switch hitting Buster Posey, that kind of player, you know, he's that kind of athlete um, and 
you know, he can really hit from both sides of the plate. He can hit for power. Uh, he's going to be a good defender behind the plate, uh, it, you know, for 10 years in the big leagues. And then, you know, like most catchers probably eventually move off of that position because it's, you know, so much wear and tear off the, on the body. But you're looking at a perennial all-star catcher in the big leagues. How far away is he? I honestly think he could he could probably handle him handle his own in the big leagues this year. Uh, I would think that uh, he could certainly be up uh, reasonably uh, by the end of next year. But I think also you have to consider like, okay, when is Baltimore realistically going to be competing again? And that is the ol- that's the only thing that I really would think would delay him in making the big leagues in. You know, the whole, we always talk about, you know, manipulating the, the service time clock and them not bringing guys up so they get that extra year, uh, you know, of arbitration or a free agency and, and things like that. So um, I would think skill-wise, he could certainly zoom through uh, the minor leagues pretty quickly um, and, and be ready by the end of uh, next season uh, with, you know, really just the Orioles' uh, level of competition being the only thing that would really slow him down. Well, you know how it works out. It's he's just going to coincidentally be ready three weeks into April. It's just going to yeah. work out that way. In three weeks into April, he'll have figured out receiving. It's going to be so. amazing that all the top <laughs> prospects all develop at exactly the same time. Exactly. The number two pick was Bobby Witt Jr. I remember last year uh, reading some draft recap stuff after the draft, and he was the guy that a lot of people said he'll be the number one pick next year. He ended up going number two. Shortstop, high school kid, another guy whose dad I saw play, of course, because I'm mm-hmm. old. But uh, <laughs> what exactly are the Royals getting? I'm reading a lot of five-tool five tool player. Is he really that? Is he a power speed guy? Is he a great defender? Does he have the arms? have everything that would make a five-tool player he really does uh he really does he's got the uh he's got a plus arm uh so he's in the range to be an everyday you know all-star level shortstop and defender uh he has power um you know is he going to hit you know 40 home runs no uh but he is going to you know be at least average uh, in that aspect of the game, but and he's going to hit for average as well. I think he's going to be at least an average hitter. So if you look at a guy that can hit, you know, say 260, 270 with, you know, 15, at least 15 to 20 bombs while also providing you, uh, you know, above average defense uh, at, uh, you know, the heart, well, one of the hardest and, you know, one of the most valuable positions in the big leagues, uh, that's a pretty good player. Uh, and Bobby Wood Jr. Uh, checks, you know, all those boxes to use <laughs> a, a scouting cliche, I guess. Andrew Vaughn went number three to the White Sox, first baseman, right-hander out of Cal. He had some big numbers this year where he went, let me look at him, 381, 544, 716. And the year before, he was even better. He went 402, 531, 819. So Mm -hmm. he's always hit. He's been a hitter every year he's played at Cal. Is that bat going to play and play pretty quick? Yes, it it really is. I mean, there. You see a lot of talk out there, and it's understandable. You know, he's a sub six foot first baseman, so you're kind of like, you know, why are we taking a first baseman with the number three pick? Oh, that's how good that bat is. I mean, he's going to hit for a high average and, uh, you know, a, a lot of power. Uh, I remember seeing him, I actually saw him as like a sophomore or junior in high school, and he was, you know, what he is now. He was a short, stocky, right handed hitter. Uh, and you're like, man, this guy could really hit, but. He's short and he's a first baseman. Uh, you know, you weren't sure, you know, if he was going to be able to hold down like left field or something like that, or even third base. 
Um, so that's why, you know, he ends up at Cal and, uh, but that bat just continued to do, um, you know, what it needed to do. He had to prove it at every level and he's done more than that. But, uh, I imagine he, the only reason why he would beat Rutschman to the big leagues, taking out, you know, how the White Sox or Orioles are going to compete at the major league level. The only reason that he would beat Rutschman to the big leagues is because Rutschman's playing a more premium position um, that might take a little bit more time to, you know, uh, you know, get his polish down with that. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, catching can tire guys out. But if you got Andrew Vaughn as a first baseman, uh, you know, a position that doesn't, um, have as m- many demands defensively, that bat's going to move extremely quickly. The Marlins picked J.J. Blade with the next pick. It's hard to believe that the Marlins didn't have the number one pick, that there were three teams worse than the Marlins last year, but there were indeed <laughs> three teams worse than the Marlins. He's an outfielder out of Vanderbilt. Did Jeter mess this up? No. No, I, I, I'm a huge J.J. Blade fan. I saw him in high school, and he was a legitimate two-way guy uh, in high school, uh, outfielder, left-handed pitcher, um, you know, projection on the mound. He would pitch in the high 80s, and, you know, he'd spin a breaking ball. And so there was some thought that, you know, maybe he'd be a pitcher down the line. Um, you know, not it, obviously 2020 hindsight, not to toot my own horn a little bit, but I had arguments with people when he was in high school, and I was like, I think this guy is a hitter. Like, I know there's upside on the mound, but I really like the swing, and everywhere I saw him, he would just – destroy baseball square everything up all over the field uh and he just he was just a dude in the box all the time i was like this guy is is gonna hit and and that's what he is he's gonna be a corner outfielder but he's gonna hit for power he's gonna hit for average um and so no i don't think cheater messed that one up i think he got a uh, a very very good uh major league hitter with the number four pick the Tigers picked Riley Green, a high school outfielder, left-hander, with the next pick. What are they getting with him? I don't know much about him at all. Kind of uh, similar to J.J. Blade in a sense. The difference being, obviously, Blade's coming out of college. Green's coming out of high school. Uh, probably similar power grades there. Riley Green, probably a little more pure hit. Uh, J.J. Blade certainly has the, the ability to go the other way and use the whole, f- whole field. But Riley Green, uh, I think, is just a little bit better at it. Uh, but he was the best uh, pure hitter in the high school class, um, you know, corner outfielder. So not necessarily a premium defensive uh, uh, profile, uh, but a guy where, you know, you're pretty confident, especially if you're going to take him a, a high school bat that's not an up the middle guy at number five. Uh, obviously, a lot of confidence in the bat there and they have every reason to be. I mean. This guy has been on the showcase circuit, playing for Team USA, and, and swinging a hot bat you know, for most of his high school career. The Reds, at pick number seven, took the first pitcher of the draft, Nick Lodolo. Six-foot-six left-hander, has three-plus pitches already. He seems like a guy that could go and be in the Reds right now. The Reds are not particularly good. Uh, they won't <laughs> promote him, obviously. They won't do that, but he's a guy that could move fast. Is he the best pitcher in the draft? Yes. Yeah, he was definitely the best the best pitcher in the draft, uh, especially and I mean, it was a thin pitching class, especially on the college side. Um, but Lodolo definitely it, it was the best guy. You know, he's got a premium fastball. Uh, you know, he's got that long projectable frame. So even though he's a college guy, you still 
uh, can think that he might add, you know, some muscle, uh, you know, in the next couple of years and be able to maintain his stuff, you know, starting every fifth day as opposed to once a week now. Uh, but certainly a guy that can move quickly and, and find himself in the front of uh, a major league rotation. The D-backs had seven of the top 64 picks. Did they make the most of it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you can't, like I was, we were talking about in like before the show, you can't not talk about the D-backs because of how many picks they had. And I thought they did, uh, you know, an outstanding job in, in uh, accumulating talent. It's, you know, with the slot system now, it's a little uh, easier to do it. I, you know, when we had draft bonanzas before the current slot system, uh, some teams would have their budgets and, you know, they would be afraid to take too many guys because they'd be spending a whole bunch of money. But now that there's the bonus pools and it's kind of allotted for you, uh, teams can really kind of push all their chips in. Uh, you know, Corbin Carroll, that one was probably one of my favorite picks of the first day because, um, you know, I'm admittedly the high man on Corbin Carroll. I've been a big fan of him. Uh, saw him as an underclassman in high school and uh, just a pure hitter. Uh, plus defender in center field, plus plus runner. Uh, he's got some sneaky pop in there. Uh, he's not a big guy, but he is definitely strong. He's put together. Um, so you're looking at like an Andrew Benatendi type uh, of player. So I think for the Diamondbacks to get him at 16 is is a bit of a steal because he easily could have gone uh, in the top 10, and we had him ranked that way. Uh, Blake Walston, uh, they get at the end of the first round. Um you know, it, they'll probably get him probably a little bit under slot there. He could have fit in one of those uh, first comp rounds or even the second round. Uh, but he's a really athletic lefty, um, played football, was a standout quarterback as well, I believe. Uh, but he can really spin a breaking ball and uh, just fills the strike zone, like just absolutely pounds it. Probably walked, uh, you know, maybe less than 10 guys on his high school season. Uh, so, you know, a pretty projectable arm there. You know, the fastball you know, is 88 to 90 right now. And you can project it being a little bit better as he uh, fills out physically because he's a pretty skinny kid right now. Um, but just a really good athlete with the ability to throw strikes and spin a breaking ball. And then Brendan Malone uh, with their first comp pick, a uh, big physical athlete on the mound, easily could have been a top 15 pick. Uh, you know, if uh, high school right-handers obviously carry a pretty risky profile, uh, but Malone's got big time stuff, fastball that's like 93 to 97. Uh, he throws a curveball and a slider that are both above average at times. Uh, he'll flash a changeup, but high school guys, uh, you know, you don't see a changeup from them very often just because they don't need it. They're almost doing their their peers a favor when they throw a changeup. But uh, definitely a good package from uh, Brendan Malone the type, you know, the type of stuff to be at least a number three starter in the big leagues if everything uh, pans out for him. Uh, but then obviously from there, uh, they kind of shifted toward the, the college side of things, which I think is great. You know, you really gamble on that upside with those high school guys, which carry risk with those first picks. Um, but then shifting to that college side, you get a lot more of those high floor, maybe lower ceiling guys, a uh, little safer bets, you know, Dre Jamison, pretty electric arm. Ryan Nelson's got an electric arm. I'm sure they'll try to develop him as a starter, but he may be a reliever in the end. Dominic Fletcher can really hit, and he's a good, he's a plus defender in center field. Uh, then they went kind of risky again. Glenn Allen Hill Jr., top of the scale speed, inconsistent bat, but if things click for him, uh, he could be a pretty dynamic player. 
And then you go on a run of guys that, you know, maybe they're relievers, but they could be quality ones. Connor Grammis can touch triple digits. Uh, Andrew Southfrank, I saw in high school, he can really spin a breaking ball from the left side. So nice balance for the Diamondbacks in those top 10 rounds. Some risk as well as some guys that have a higher floor. And then in the 12th round, Avery Short is a very polished high school left-hander. If they can get that deal done with him in the 12th round, uh, that's a pretty impressive haul for one draft. Glenn Allen Hill Sr. once had a very coveted rookie card. I believe it was 1990 tops. That <laughs> investment didn't pay off too well. 12-year-old <laughs> no, me did not hit the jackpot on that one. <laughs> you and me both. I, I have got a closet full of baseball cards at my parents' house that uh, not are not worth what we thought they would be one day. So much for our retirement funds. <laughs> the Dodgers, Jim Callis had a piece on MLB.com saying that the Dodgers did very well in this draft and they continue to draft well even though they're picking in the bottom parts of the round. How are they doing this? It's evaluation, and obviously, you know, there's good players, you know, in the bottom of the first round and even outside of the first round. You just have to, you know, pick who they are and, and evaluate them, and the Dodgers have uh, been able to do that. Uh, Cody Hosey is a guy that can be an above-average defender at third base and hit for some power and average. Uh, Michael Bush, you know, there are questions about what position that he's going to play in the end. I think they uh, announced him as a second baseman. Um, you know, he might end up at left field or even first base, but he's one of those guys where his position really is batter's box. Uh, he can really hit, he can hit for power and he's really patient at the plate. Um, I live in North Carolina, so UNC is about 15 minutes from my house. So I was able to see Bush a couple of times and he walked about 50 to 75% of the time I saw him. (laughs) So, uh, super patient at the plate. Uh, and then Jimmy Lewis is a guy that we're really high on, um, you know, is a first to second round type talent, projectable, uh, strong uh, Texas right-hander. I mean, he's what we see come out of Texas year after year, just big, strong righties, uh, you know, with a low 90s fastball and, you know, a pretty good breaking ball. Uh, so to get him with their last pick of uh, of day one, I thought that was a really, that was a big statement. That was a really emphatic pick, you know, Jimmy Lewis being the last guy off the board of day one. And uh, definitely a guy with plenty of upside. How did Brody Van Wagenen of the Mets do overseeing his first draft? I thought they did great. Uh, you know, Brett Beatty was one of my favorite players in this class. Seeing him at area codes last year, um, it's a special left-handed bat. It, he's got really quick hands, and it's loose. It's not like he's just a, you know, a big donkey up there who's Deadpool swinging for the fence every time. He's got feel for hit. He can use the whole field, uh, which leads me to believe that he's going to hit for a high average. Uh, but then he's got power, and it's easy power. Uh, he was hitting balls at the area code games, which, if you're not familiar, Blair Field at Long Beach State is uh, a tough place to hit it out. Not only is it deep dimensions, uh, but you're down you know, pretty close to the water, and the marine layer makes the air really heavy, and the ball does not fly out of there. And Brett Beatty made that place look small, uh, especially to the opposite field. Uh, so pretty special left-handed bat. Josh Wolf, uh, again, like we talked about with Jimmy Lewis, uh, Texas right-hander with a you know a big fastball and a big breaking ball uh, easily could have gone in the first round, and then really the first surprise uh, or big oh my goodness moment of day two was when they took Matthew Allen, who easily could have been a top fifteen pick, um, but you know fell out of the first round probably because high school right-hander risky, uh, you know Boris Court, you know those guys tend to fall a little bit because of the signability questions. 
but them taking him in the third round, you're looking at they had a first round pick, a second round pick, and a third round pick, and I think they got first three first rounders. The Angels had eight of PBR's top 200. How did they pull that off? Uh, that's a good question. Now, you know, top 200, we're talking about, you know, guys that we, when you look at a top 200 and valuing about the top six rounds. Um, so they just kept taking guys that were probably, you know, best available on the board. Uh, you know, Will Wilson with their first pick at NC State, uh, shortstop that uh, is a really good hitter, M- might move over to second base, be more of an offensive second baseman, um, but a good hitter nonetheless. And Kyron Paris with their second round pick, um, you know, fits right there. You know, we had Will Wilson ranked 19th on our board. He went 15th. We had Kyron Paris ranked 67th. He went 55. Um, they did uh, get pretty good value out of Jack Honowitz uh, out of Pennsylvania. They picked him at 92. We had him ranked in the top 50. Uh, he was a guy that probably had some signability questions being committed to Virginia. But just as you move down their board, the correlation of where we have them ranked uh, to where they went uh, with overall pick uh, is pretty close. So they, it just seems like, you know, as they got to each round, rather than trying to go for like a deep discount uh, senior sign, uh, they just went with the best guys available and, um, you know, probably will sign a lot of those guys pretty close to slot. The Red Sox didn't actually have a first round pick. They were penalized for going over the cap last year. But they still made some interesting picks. They got Noah Song from Navy, who does have a two-year commitment to Navy. But he's Mm -hmm. a guy that a lot of people think have mid-first-round talent that they got on day Mm -hmm. two, which is a very nice pick for them. They're just going to play the waiting game with him, which I think was a smart pick. Absolutely. I love that pick. Uh, Noah Song was one of my favorite guys that I saw this spring. Uh, I had flown back from Florida and landed and immediately drove a couple hours from my house to go see uh, Navy take on Air Force in the Freedom Classic in Kinston, in Kinston, uh, North Carolina. And it was a miserable day. It was like 45 degrees. It was raining. A typical North Carolina winter day. It was one of those ones where you're just like, why am I at the ballpark? And here comes Noah's song, 92 to 94, touching 96. Uh, with a wipeout slider, just mowing guys down, and uh, and not just in uh, he's overpowering guys, but he's also just competitive. He's got that edge on the mound, and I was I love this guy, and he was a slam dunk first round talent for me. Now, given the commitment uh, to the military, I totally understand why he didn't go in the first round. That certainly is a, a considerable amount of risk to take on. You know, when you're not going to have a guy essentially in your system for a couple of years uh, at the very least because, you know, he's in flight school. So he's got two years of active uh, commitment. But then there's the whole, uh, you know, he's got reserve duty. So, you know, there are some questions there. But taking him in the fourth round, um, you know, it may that may really pay off uh, down the road. They could get, you know, a middle of the rotation guy at least, you know, uh, when he's done with his military commitment. and. You know, for a fourth-round pick, uh, that's that's pretty good. Where would Jack Leiter have gone if he was signable? To sign him, you would have had to have taken him in the first round. And I think he was a first-round talent. Um, I think he would have easily fit uh, in, that tw- in that back third, that 20 to 30 range. 
Uh, he's undersized, so if you take the fact that he's a high school right-hander, we've talked about that risky profile, and then add in the fact that he is under six feet tall. Uh, so he's uh, on that shorter end of the spectrum, you know, that sweet spot for high, uh, for uh, major league right uh, starters in general is that 6'2", 6'3", even 6'4", range, uh, and Jack Leiter is about 5'10", 5'11". Uh, but I've been saying all spring, uh, I don't really care. Like, I understand you know, profiling a guy like that. There's plenty of them. We see him every year and it's like, well, he's undersized. But every time I saw Jack Leiter, he made me forget that he was five foot 10. Uh, you know, he can pitch in 90 to 94. I saw him touch 98 this spring. Don't think he's going to pitch there by any means. He's going to be one of those like 92 to 94 guys touching a little higher if he needs it. Uh, but he's got two above average breaking balls and the curveball and the slider. Uh, I've seen the curveball really on one day where it looks like it's going to be a plus pitch, and then I've seen it off where then the slider is working that day where it's above average. Uh, he's got feel for a changeup. He's athletic. I say he's 5'10", 5'11", but he's really strong. I mean, if you walk, if you see him walk around in a pair of gym shorts, he's got really strong calves, strong lower half. So, you know, the durability is the question when you talk about those short guys. But he's put together so well that I'm not really – uh, that worried about his durability down the line. And then you just add in the fact that he's got bloodlines and he's just super competitive on the mound. He gets between the lines and he's just mean. So he he was a first round talent for me and you would have had to have taken him uh, in the first round if you wanted to uh, sign him because it was going to cost a pretty penny. Who are some other picks on day two and three that you like a lot? Well, obviously that Matt Allen uh, pick that we mentioned to the Mets was one that really jumped out. Uh, Hudson Head out of Texas was a high schooler that had a really big spring uh, that the Padres jumped on. So uh, I, I like that pick. But Tyler Callahan, for me, was a guy that we could have seen go by the end of that first round. The Reds got him in the third round at 85th overall. Um, just uh, a, one of those guys that the position's a question. I honestly think that he can th- hold down third base or second base. Um, you know, he's done a lot of work to, to get in better physical shape. And I think he moves pretty well. He's by no means a plus athlete. Uh, but I think he's a good enough athlete to move around and be, a, you know, a serviceable, serviceable defender at those positions, but he can really hit and he can hit for power. Um, you know, he was one of the better pure hitters, uh, in that high school class, but we mentioned the angels with Jack Honowitz. I think that's tremendous value, uh, getting a guy like that in the third round, a lot of upside, He's got those long levers, so he can scatter it uh, with his command at times, uh, but he can sit in the low 90s with his fastball, uh, and he can spin a breaking ball. So uh, those were a couple that really stood out. I also liked um, Ethan Hearn going where he did in the, uh, I think it was the sixth round to the Cubs, uh, one of the better catching uh, defenders in the high school class uh, with a uh, power left-handed bat. It's power over hit, uh, but he's a good defender left-handed hitter obviously that's got a lot of value um at the catching position and then i'll give you a sleeper uh in uh, will bartlett uh taken in the i think it was the was it the 10th or no the ninth round to cleveland um he is one of the better pure hitters in the high school class probably a first baseman in the end and right-handed so understandable that he kind of slid down uh some you know into the ninth round because you, you tie a lot of the value to the bat uh, but he was a kid that I talked to in the spring after a game, and I asked him, you know, about his approach at the plate. And for a high school kid, you know, I hear a lot of 
vague answers and a lot of them are saying, you know, they're 18 years old. They're not that mature yet with the interviews, but Will Bartlett sounded like a big leaguer to me. He was like, well, you know, they were pitching me soft away. So I was looking to go away. And then in my next at bat, when he hit a home run, he goes in my next at bat, you know, they had worked me soft away. So I thought they might challenge me, uh, inside. And then I saw the coach, uh, shift his outfielders, uh, to my left. So I knew they were going to come hard in at some point. So I just started looking for a fastball and I jumped on it. And I was like, there are not a lot of 18 year olds that think like that and articulate it at this stage. So he's a sleeper for me. I think he could be, um, a major leaguer for sure with that bat. We didn't see a high school pitcher go until pick 18, I believe. Are teams mm-hmm. shying away from these young arms at this point, or was this just not the strongest class? Well, no, it was a strong class because I do think, you know, we did talk a lot about how the class overall, uh, you know, in all aspects, college hitters, pitchers, high school hitters, pitchers was a little down. Um, but I thought the the high school pitching crop definitely had some depth to it and some strength. Uh, it just high school pitchers are so risky right-handers more so than left-handers um, that guy that teams just kind of do shy away from that just because of the risk they'd rather you know take something that's a little bit of a safer bet with one of those high picks um, and, and get some major league value out of it because you know you look at a lot of those college guys uh, chances are they're going to be contributing major leaguers. Now, whether they're part-time players or all-stars is ultimately the question in the end that we're waiting for. But high school right-handers, you could get, uh, you know, you could get big-time uh, pitchers in the major leagues uh, and all-stars, or you could get a guy that doesn't get out of, you know, the low minors. There's a lot of risk with those guys, and teams have recognized that. And they know that that risk is there, but they've gone ahead and still picked guys. And I think they're really starting to be more conscious of that and waiting a little bit longer to take them in the draft just because of that risk. So who's next next year? Who's the number one next year? Who's that guy that's already emerged as the likely number one pick for next year? Uh, if I'm going to put uh, put on, put anything on it a year out and put any money down, I'm going to say Emerson Hancock, uh, University of Georgia right-hander. Really uh, tall, projectable frame. I mean, he's the kind of guy who walks out of the mound. You're like, well, yep, that's how you draw it up. Um, but a chance for a plus fastball, uh, plus secondary stuff. It's it's pretty electric uh, on the mound. And you know, we saw uh, we saw him in the playoffs. Uh, and you know, it, there's a lot of upside there. And you know, being a college right-hander. Uh, those guys uh, usually don't last very long on the board, so I can I can see him very easily being the number one pick next year. What college programs were most affected by this draft? Texas A and M uh, took a real hit when it comes to uh, when it comes to the recruiting class. Uh, they saw uh, a few of their pitchers go on the first day, and JJ Goss. Uh, Josh Wolf, who we talked about, and Matthew Thompson. Now, I think they probably are prepared for that. They were probably were thinking, look, we're going to probably lose uh, two of these guys. If we get one of them, we'll be pretty happy. Um, but there are the chances are we'll lose at least two. They ended up losing all three. So that one definitely stings. Um, but I think the a little twist of the knife for them was on uh, day two. Uh, when Desan Brown, who uh, is a high-end athlete out of Canada, uh, plus-plus runner, 
uh, he went on day two. Uh, I think it was to the Blue Jays. I think uh, you know he's an Ontario guy, so hometown team taking him there. Um, that one probably hurt uh, quite a bit. I mean, again, it's Texas A&M. No one's going to shed a tear for him because they still do have some recruits coming in. But I think they were probably hoping that they could get maybe one of those pitchers and Brown. Um, but they definitely took a hit, as did uh, Louisiana State. Uh, they definitely uh, were hurt with uh, Daniel Espino uh, going in the first round to Cleveland and then Jimmy Lewis to the Dodgers. Uh, I think they might have thought they had a shot at Lewis uh, when he started sliding out of that you know, first and second round. Plus, he missed a... He's missed his last couple starts, so there might have been some health questions there. Um, so maybe they were thinking they'd get him. But then Reese Hines, I know that they were pretty um, pretty sure that they would lose. So they lose those three guys on day one. And on day two, Christian Cairo, they lost. He's kind of a, a smaller frame uh, infielder, but he's got big league bloodlines. A uh, really good athlete, uh, above average defender at short, and he can handle the bat. But one of those guys that because of the frame, you're like, ah, you know, I really like this guy. But because he's small, I don't know how he'll hold up in pro ball. So looks like he'll be a really good college player. Maybe we'll let him go there for a few years and prove it. But he gets popped on day two. And that's uh, that's definitely a, a tough loss for the LSU Tigers. If you could change one thing about the draft, what would it be? I think I would go less rounds. I, I You know, 40 rounds. I understand, like, you know, you want to fill – uh, you know, out your short season teams, fill out some rosters in the minor leagues. Um, but we see a lot of funny picks. Like, uh, I can't remember which team it was, but we saw the Florida University of Florida quarterback get drafted who hasn't played baseball since high school. Like, I mean, the chances of him ever playing baseball again in his life are almost zero. So we really need a, a, a round for a guy like that to be a draft pick. Um, I think you can shorten the number of rounds uh, that we have, and then anybody that's left over, they're free agents, but they're still you're still subject to the bonus pools uh, and, and things like that. Like you can only spend X amount, so it's not like bonuses are going to get out of control if these guys, if a lot of these late round guys just become free agents. Uh, so just be taking away, you know, going from 40 rounds to 30 or maybe even 20 isn't going to make bonuses go out of control because a lot of those guys are going to sign for low bonuses anyway because they're organizational players. They're filling out rosters in the low minor leagues. So I don't see a huge need for, you know, round 38. You've been listening to Nathan Rohde. Nathan is the National Scouting Supervisor for Prep Baseball Report. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Nathan Rohde. That's R-O-D-E. Nathan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. No problem, Ross. Thanks for having me. 